goal today is uh, to cover just some material to give context for the whole uh, kind of craze that's going on right now with the uh, uh, works of justice movement and and uh, so I want to do that. Uh, I found that dealing with excess and falsehood, you don't have to mull over issues of the falsehood. You just have to try to give a clear context for the issues, and then perversion seems weird, you know. So that's kind of <clears throat> like like Paul does, you know. For example, in Second Timothy two. Where he's talking about uh, 2 Timothy 2.16, Avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. So you already in the early church have people saying, realized eschatology, that the eschatology, the Jewish eschatology involving the day of the Lord and the resurrection has already taken place spiritually. <clears throat> Paul says it destroys the faith of some. He says, nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. So you have a pretty strong, you know, the saying when you say these things, it's actually wickedness because it really does destroy people and their faith. He says, In a large house there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes, some for ignoble. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. So again, he's, he's giving an analogy of, of uh, stuff in the house that is, is different, important, less important. And he's just saying, look, consecrate yourselves to the truth so that the Lord can use you. So that it, it's... Uh... <clears throat> so you have the same kind of language in 1 Timothy 6. He says, the end of... First uh, Timothy 6, in context to taking hold of the life, the coming age, taking hold of the life that's truly life, verse 19. Then verse 20 says, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. So in context of taking hold of eternal life, he says, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter. So it's the exact same phrase that we just saw and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge. And so the Greek word for knowledge is gnosis, which is where we get Gnosticism, because it's a, it's a, a puffed up, uh, it's, it's the Greek form of pride and arrogance and a puffed up spirit uh, of superior knowledge, a secret knowledge and revelation, which of course we all know is rampant, has been rampant in the church you know, from day one just because of the, the nature of human beings. <clears throat> so, which some have professed, and in doing so have wandered from the truth. Right. So you get the exact same phrase as teaching that the resurrection's already happened. They've wandered from the truth. It's godless chatter. <clears throat> and it's a, it's, a, uh, it's a falsely called knowledge. It's a false knowledge. So you have... Uh, Likewise, in Second Thessalonians 1, it says, uh, In context, all this is evidence that God's judgment is right and will result in you being counted worthy for the kingdom of God for which you're suffering. God is just. He'll pay back trouble for those who trouble you <clears throat> and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire and with his powerful angels he'll punish those who do not know God, do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. He'll punish, they'll be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord from the majesty of his power on the day that he comes to be glorified. So then, a few verses down, concerning our coming, chapter 2, verse 1, 
concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to become unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Right? So you, you have a group of people that are teaching the resurrection's already happened spiritually. They're, they're writing false letters with the name of with apostolic authority on them, saying that the day of the Lord's been realized, the resurrection's been realized, all of this is, is happening now spiritually, and you need a special revelation of it, right? So again, when you get a solid, you know, a rooting and grounding in the scripture, you hear it and it's like, really? <laughs> the resurrection's already happened? Like, Justice has been established upon the earth. The wicked are receiving their due reward. The righteous are, are being blessed. Really? Like, I'm not sure you've been to Iran or China any time lately. I, I don't I don't think it's I don't think you're in touch with the reality. You know, but it it it's people get deluded. It's a spirit that comes on people and it deludes them. Whether that's under the sovereignty of God or not. Because, you know, you get later, the, the Lord sends a deluding spirit at the end of the age. And, and uh, you know, the getting 2 Samuel and 1 uh, Samuel and in, in Chronicles where, not 2 Samuel, where the, the Lord provoked David to do the census and then Satan provoked David to do the census and so I don't know how that works out, but it's under the sovereignty of God that he hardens the Jews. And that hardens, hardening comes through delusion and, and falsehood. So the, 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 however that works out, it, it's, it's something beyond just intellect and teaching. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, and it requires the truth backed up by an encounter with God and the Holy Spirit. And so our part is to teach the truth and ask God to deliver people. And it's very simple and straightforward. It requires no massive revelation. You don't have to be educated or old enough to understand it all. It's a very simple timeline like we're talking about. But the revelations, the false revelations, are uh, they're always more complicated. And they take a special elite. It's an esoteric knowledge by an inner circle that then is imparted. That impartation is uh, rather demonic. So so anyway, that's just the context where Paul is like 1 Corinthians 15 where you have this, this uh, phenomenon, the same bit in Corinth where you have a teaching that there is no resurrection of the body. The resurrection's already happened spiritually. And Paul is driving home and saying... But if it's preached that Christ has not been raised from the dead, how can some of you say, if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? There's no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And we've been false witnesses. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still under sin. You're still in your sins. Right? You're still stuck in this age. This is all it ends with. This is all you got. You know, my, uh, one of my closest friends is Joel Richardson, and he does a, if you guys saw it at the DTN conference, he does a hamster wheel analogy. You know, the hamster wheel of kingdom now. You, people get stuck on it, and, and they're told that if you just work up faith and stir it up, that it'll happen, and it's, it just becomes like a hamster wheel. You work at it, Feels like there's motion, feels like things are moving somewhere, but nothing ever actually happens. Everybody still dies. You, you, you know what I'm saying? And the wicked rule over the earth. It doesn't matter if you have a big strategy to take over all the banking system, which they do, because <clears throat> that's where the money is. And you, you, it doesn't matter. They're, the wicked are still going to rule over the earth. And then when the righteous set their hearts to take over, they become wicked. It always works that way. 
So it's just this hamster wheel. You're still stuck. You're still in your sins. You're still stuck in this age with how it actually is. And there are constraints about this age that that cannot be overcome because God has ordained an order to this age. And it doesn't mean we have a lack of faith that we can we can't somehow overcome the old order and make it the new order of Revelation 21. We just it's it's not ordained. Men are ordained to die and face judgment, and that's how it is. It's it wasn't it, it wasn't Adam's choosing that God said you will return to the dust from which you were taken. It doesn't matter how hard Adam tries or what he's going to return to the dust because it's been ordained and that's how it is. And so there's a there's a nature to this age that is fundamentally humiliating to the pride of man. And it's not something to to be concerned with when people, you know, work up a a when they work themselves up against that. It's just to accept the scriptures, accept the reality of the day of the Lord and how things are, receive what God has given us for now, the gift of the Holy Spirit, walk in obedience to the mandate of the church to be a witness to the cross and his return, to to represent him, to walk in, in truth and and uh, in fellowship with him, and though outwardly waste away, inwardly be renewed. And again, like we talked about yesterday, the way we we renew we become renewed inwardly is that we set our eyes we fix our eyes on the age to come and our heart follows and it's when our heart follows that inwardly renew we're renewed though outwardly things fall apart <clears throat> so then paul ends that whole section in 1 corinthians 15 where he says if i fought wild beasts in ephesus for merely human reasons for this life, I thought beasts, if I sacrificed in this life for this life, what have I gained? This life. But even if you gain the whole world, what happens? You lose your soul. You know what I mean? It's like the futility of it. <laughs> if the dead are not ra- raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. <laughs> that's like hardcore. Like you're preaching the re- there's no resurrection of the body that's already been realized and it's it's happening now. And Paul's like, you've been misled. You've been hanging out with people with bad character and you're sinning. Come back to the truth. You've wandered from the truth. Come back to the truth. He says, there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. (laughs) Awesome, brother. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) No guilt trip or anything. Shame on you. Okay, so uh, let's jump into the notes. The justice of God and and redemptive history. Is it already rolling out? So... The justice of God in redemptive history, because really the whole uh, justice movement is a realized eschatology movement. It's an inaugural movement, it's a kingdom now, a dominionist movement, whatever. It's all kinds of different camps and stuff. And 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 we'll see that it's it's not uh, you know, it's it's not obviously that justice is bad. It's not it's not that the things of this age are bad. It's the priority, okay? It's the seeking first issue. And that's the issue of the heart that is of highest importance in the sight of God. And so what we want to correct is just to get a simple framework for the justice of God and then to give ourselves rightly in priority to in relation to these things. So uh, the justice of God and redemptive history. Why don't we just ask the Lord to <clears throat> open our eyes, strengthen our hearts. God, we we just uh, we submit ourselves to you right now, God. We ask you, Father, by the Holy Spirit, that you would lead us into truth, that you would um, 
<clears throat> that you would deliver us from the evil one, God. And we just say we're like every other human being. We walk in delusion. We're prone to it, God. And so we ask you to lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In every area of our life, and even as we meet together now, God, we ask for the for your grace, your mercy, and the gift of the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so, the justice of God in redemptive history, um, just to start out, justice and cruciform apocalypticism. So just to put justice in its right framework in, the broad, in a broad biblical theology on the timeline in relation to the cross and in relation to the day of the Lord. So Gehenna in the scriptures, or hell, is the fulfillment of divine justice. And so everything concerning what is wrong about the earth, and from the sin of Adam and the transgression of Adam, Romans 5, that death came, entered in, and you have the order of this age, that then there will not be any more sin, suffering, crying, pain, death, and Revelation 21, the new order, all of this is moving toward Gehenna, the lake of fire. And so we want to put Gehenna in, it, in its right context. And so Gehenna, the concept of Gehenna derives from the prophets and as, as redemptive history unfolds. So the same way that the, the, the concept of Zion and the glory of God emanating from Mount Zion in Jerusalem and covering the earth, that the, the heavens open over Zion and, and the house of God and the angels ascend and descend and the glory of God is administrated across the earth, that thing was, was developed through the covenants and through the prophetic oracles, right? So because the, Zion was just a fortress on a hill with the Jebusites before that, right? You get, you get free picturings of it with, with, uh, with uh, Melchizedek being the king of Salem, uh, but uh, but really the the development is oriented around like Psalm 132. I made a covenant with my servant David, and I have chosen Zion for my eternal dwelling. Of course, God chose that from eternity past, but made that known in context to David and making a covenant with this man. So likewise, Gehenna develops in this fashion through the prophetic oracle that there is a valley outside of Jerusalem that is going to be the, the culmination of divine judgment. And so Isaiah 30, the Lord will cause men to hear his majestic voice and will make them see his arm coming down with raging anger and consuming fire. So like we like we see throughout the prophets, the arm of the Lord is the Messiah. Isaiah 52, uh, Behold, who has believed our message? Who is, what does it say? Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up, he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root uh, dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow, familiar with suffering. He took upon us, he took up our infirmities, carried our sorrows. The punish the punishment that was due us was laid upon him. So, again, the arm of the Lord is is the the one that works on behalf of the Lord, the agent of the Lord, the Messiah. So the Lord will cause men to hear his majestic voice and make them see. His arm coming down with raging anger and consuming fire with cloudburst, thunderstorm, and hail. Topheth, okay, and so Topheth is a place within the valley of Ben-Hinnom. So you can look up those references later, but Topheth is, is, uh, is, a, is the place within the valley of, of Ben-Hinnom, southwest of Jerusalem, okay, and, and they would offer the... They, during the times of the kings, they offered sacrifices to Moloch, burned their children in, in Topheth in that valley. So Topheth became in the prophetic literature, as you read in, in Jeremiah, and that, that as you've offered your children there, that the valley of Ben-Hinnom and Topheth is going to become a valley of slaughter for you. 
right? And so as these things, you know, like he says to David, your son, your seed, will I will give the kingdom. And it turns out it wasn't Solomon, so this gets projected eschatologically. It gets projected to the end. So likewise, the valley of Ben-Hinnom did not become the valley of slaughter. It might have in a small way, you know, and in a temporal way, but it didn't become the ultimate uh, uh, receptacle of the wicked forever. And so it gets projected eschatologically that this is going to be the final place of the punishment of the wicked is this valley outside of Jerusalem. <clears throat> so Topheth has long been prepared, has been made ready for the king, whether that means the Messianic king or the Assyrian right before that. I, I would probably say the Assyrian or the Antichrist, the, it's because just how it gets quoted in, in Revelation 19. But its fire pit has been made deep and wide with an abundance of fire and wood. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of burning sulfur, sets it ablaze. So you see in the footnote, southwest of the city was the Valley of Hinnom, an area that had a long history of desecration. The steep gorge was once used to burn children and sacrifice to the Ammonite god Moloch. Jeremiah denounced such practices by saying that Hinnom Valley would become the valley of God's judgment, a place of slaughter. As the years passed, a sense of foreboding hung over the valley. People began to burn their garbage and offal there. Using sulfur, the flammable substance we now use in matches and gunpowder. Eventually, the Hebrew name Gehenom, Canyon of Hinnom, evolved into Gehenna, the familiar Greek word for hell. Thus, when the Jews talked about punishment in the next life, what better image could they use than, than the smoldering valley they call Gehenna? Some Jews, of course, took the fiery images literally, supposing the Hinnom Valley itself would become the place of hellfire and judgment. Uh, now, this is a little bit of a, a misrepresentation. Some Jews took it metaphorically. Most Jews took it literally. Of course, he's presenting four views on hell, right? So he's presenting the, the metaphorical view, not the literal view. So he, he wants to slant his case there. Anyway, but uh, so there's a common tradition that this valley is going to be the, the, the place where God concludes his divine judgment upon humanity, upon the wicked. And he's going to fill this valley with burning sulfur and fire that streams from his throne. And so if you fill a valley with fire, what does it become? It becomes a lake of fire, right? So this is, this is, a, this is a common image that, that people understand. There's going to be a lake of fire outside Jerusalem. And people, when, when God sets up the eternal kingdom in the new Jerusalem, He's going to throw the wicked when he gathers the nations to Zion to judge them. He's going to throw the wicked out of the city into the lake of burning fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. <clears throat> so, um, and it will be a fiery furnace, right? So like Psalm 21 says, O Lord, the king rejoices in your strength. How great is his joy in the victories you give. Verse 4, he asked you for life, you gave it to him, length of days, forever and ever. Verse 6, surely you've granted him eternal blessing, and made him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, through the unfailing love of the Most High, he will not be shaken. Your hand will lay hold on your enemies, your right hand will seize your foes. At the time of your appearing, you will make them like a fiery furnace. In his wrath, the Lord will swallow them up and his fire will consume them. He will destroy their descendants from the earth, their posterity from mankind. So the consuming fire of the Lord is then embodied and projected into this valley outside Jerusalem that will be filled with fire into a lake. But it will also be like a furnace. It will be like an oven, like, like Malachi 4 says, as the, as the Old Testament concludes. Surely the day is coming, it will be like a furnace or an oven. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble or chaff. And that day is coming, will set them on fire. So, so it, it also has the imagery of an oven, which is, which is they'll be thrown outside into the darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Because though there's fire, it's, 
self-contained. And it's got the imagery of darkness. So again, this isn't, these aren't, I mean, there is symbolism and there is image and there is metaphor, but it's symbolism of reality. You understand? The visions with the beasts and the, and the monsters and the, and the signs of this and that, they're symbolic, but not of some transcendent non-reality. They're symbolic of reality. And so likewise, the imagery of Gehenna was understood as symbolic of reality, the valley outside of Jerusalem that will be filled with fire. So this is the context for the references to Gehenna, which then get translated as hell in the New Testament. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members that your whole body be thrown into hell, into Gehenna. Your right hand causes you to sin. Better you lose one of your members than your whole body go into Gehenna. Matthew 18, your hand or foot causes you to sin. Cut it off. It's better to you for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. Right? And it's a strange thing indeed if the fire goes on forever, but the purpose of it ends, if, if you're familiar with the annihilationist argument. So the, the, the fire goes on in torment forever. And, and of course you have the contrast between the eternal fire and entering life and the resurrection. Matthew 23, talking to the Pharisees, Woe to you hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. When he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a son of Gehenna as yourself, right? So right before that, woe to you, you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You won't enter in, right? So you have the imagery of the future with the, with the present tense. And so it's, it's a, just a common way of speaking about our inheritance. We can talk about a future thing with the present tense, and this is commonly understood, right? So the same way you shut the door to eternal life in men's faces by what you're doing now. You seal it upon them with surety. Likewise, you make them a son, a child of a future inheritance of fire rather than a child with a future inheritance of, of life and glory. <clears throat> Matthew 9, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands go into hell where the fire never goes out. Your eye causes you sin, pluck it out. Better for you to enter the kingdom of God. So again, you have the, the, the synonym between life, the kingdom of God, and Gehenna all happening simultaneously. You'll be thrown into hell with two eyes where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So that's in context Isaiah 66. The creating of a new heaven and new earth and the wicked being thrown outside and you, you go outside, to the righteous will go outside to look upon their bodies an eternal torment where the worm doesn't die and the fire isn't quenched. So there's uh, the quoting of it. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known, right? So outwardly whitewashed and, and beautiful. Inwardly full of dead men's bones, greed, selfish ambition. And so this is why he's saying that at the day of the Lord, everything will be exposed and laid bare and it will be made known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. What you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. So whatever's going on on the inside that you whisper and you keep kind of quiet and whatever, that will all be made known and, and, and laid bare. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him after who after he is killed, has authority to cast into Gehenna. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So it's always understood as a place in relation to, in the future, in relation to the, 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 the city, the city of the great king, and in relation to the kingdom of God and eternal life and these things. So, Revelation 14 If anyone worships the beast and its image receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will... He'll also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength. Right? So it's understand that the, the wrath of God has not been pulled, poured full strength. That's kind of a common assumption. But then is poured full strength at the end of the age, at the day of the Lord. 
into the cup of his anger, and he'll be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. So this is this is just a a supplemental note that I that I give people who are caught in the bondage that's that's going around rampant on uh, of annihilationism in which the fire consumes for the fudge. Fudge and hell. Good. Don't watch it. So, um, but it, it just gives the context of all the intertestamental literature that references very clearly all of the the everlasting destruction, the fire consuming, everlasting punishment, that this is all directly tied to eternal conscious torment. And uh, <clears throat> and so, just to give background to the phrases that happen in the New Testament, you, 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 can't, you can't interpret eternal punishment as you end existence, and that's eternal punishment. Those aren't the same in their mind. There's assumptions that are laid out both in the Apocrypha, Right, canonized to them in the Septuagint that they're reading, and to Catholic Church, Eastern Orthodox, but um, and also in the Pseudepigrapha, various writings that they would be familiar with. <clears throat> because, well, and move on. So the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast, the false prophet, had been thrown. They'll be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Then you have the gray white throne and those whose names are written in the book of life by faith and the blood of the Lamb. <clears throat> they inherit eternal life. The wicked inherit a lake of fire. So the day of the Lord was understood as a day of justice, okay? Uh, because that's the idea. Judgment and justice are interchangeable. It's the day when righteousness is established. So I tell you, on the day of justice, people will give an account for every careless word. John 5, and he has given him authority to execute judgment or execute justice because of, he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this for hours coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment or justice. And so this is how it's understood that justice is being restrained from the earth, that the, the the game going on in this age is mercy. That's the only game going on. The age to come is the age of righteousness and justice. And Gehenna is, is the playing out of divine justice. And so you also, it's understood that the resurrection of the wicked is a bodily resurrection in which the eternal torment happens with an eternal body that will not fade, perish, or spoil. Okay, and so likewise, in, on the one hand, you have the resurrection to life in an eternal body, and you also have the resurrection of the wicked to an eternal body and eternal conscious torment. <clears throat> so you have a scale of the severity of divine judgment. On the one hand, with a very liberal gospel and a completely kingdom now realized eschatology, you have a unhappiness in this life, non-prosperity, is the fulfillment of divine justice. And that's as severe as it gets. Life is unhappy now. Then you have annihilationism, in which you end existence at death. Then you have purgatory, which there's punishment after death, but then the judgment is fulfilled after a time of, of punishment. And then you have eternal ethereal torment, in which there is the, there's, a, there's eternal conscious torment, but it's not bodily. It's kind of that Platonic idea of just kind of a, the, the, the contrast of floating on clouds forever and kind of floating in ethereal flames forever. And then you have eternal corporeal or bodily torment. And this is the most severe uh, uh, embodiment of, the, of divine judgment and we understand that this is how this is how God is because this is how love works, right? My kids, my my son walks over to my other son and punches him in the face. So, what do I do? If I don't love them, I just kind of go deal with it, you know. But if I love them, 
I recompense damage for damage, right? To the degree the damage is done, I recompense damage. And so, so love is the, the judgment is the expression of love for the one who has received damage. And so, you, you, if you have a view that God infinitely values human beings, and then sin does infinite damage to what he infinitely values, then recompense to infinite damage is infinite punishment, infinite recompense, right? And so this is just a basic, straightforward understanding of why eternal punishment to the most severe degree uh, is, is set up in Scripture. And it's not a, complicated, not a complicated argument, but it's hard to accept. It's why multitudes of people are taken into delusion by it and, and say that a loving God can't do that. <clears throat> so, um, Romans 2, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment or justice will be revealed. The day of justice for the destruction of ungodly men. <clears throat> Page 3. So, you have the holding for eschatological justice. You have human beings are held for the day of judgment. Second Peter 2, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into Tartarus. So, here we, we come into the difficulty of translation, right? So, Tartarus was understood as the lower regions of Hades. Hades was the holding tank for, for the devil, his angels, and human beings until the day of judgment. And they're very different realities. Hades, which is the Greek word for Sheol, was a present reality uh, within the earth. And it's, uh, it's the holding place that then death and Hades are raised up eschatologically and thrown into the lake of fire. Right, so one is present under the earth, the other is at the end of the age upon the earth outside of Jerusalem. And this is the very straightforward, simple way of interpreting uh, the, the, the scriptures. So I, I just did a chart on the back of the supplemental notes that just give you all the different references and ways that you have a, a present temporal reality under the earth and an, a future eternal reality upon the earth. And they, they get used, you know, def, different, uh, different descriptions and different words get used for, uh, for, for those. Those underneath the earth, the lower, just descended to the lower parts of the earth, the subterranean, the depths, the deep, the abyss, uh, Tartaros. All these are understood as a present reality under the earth versus the lake of fire and eternal punishment and eternal uh, fire and uh, and uh, Gehenna as eschatological eternal upon upon the earth. So uh, so what happened was that you had you know like the KJV translated both Hades and Gehenna with the same word hell. And they're not the they're not the same. Though Hades isn't pleasant, it's it's not pleasant for the unrighteous. During you get in intertestamental literature that that Hades was the holding place for both the righteous and the wicked. Like you know when uh, when Saul went to the 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 uh, diviner and raised up uh, uh, Samuel from the from the earth, you you have uh, a common assumption that the righteous go to Hades as well as as the wicked. Now, what you do with that uh, as you come into the New Testament, these are kind of speculative things because there's not a lot of uh, direct reference, but the assumption is is that um, this is the way I approach it. You can't be dogmatic about it, but it, it seems to make the best of the whole of the Scriptures. Okay, so again, you're not trying to get an airtight boat. You're just trying to get one that will get across and... And, uh, you know, holes are okay just as long as you don't sink, right? So you have verses like Matthew 27, right? After the resurrection, tombs broke open and, the, and, and saints went around the city visiting people, 
right? And, and uh, Ephesians 4, he descended to the lower parts of the earth and then led captives in his train as he ascended on high, right? And so the assumption is, like Hebrews 9, that, uh, that the presence of God uh, in the height of the heavens was cleansed with the blood of the Lamb, that, that uh, the eternal blood was applied upon the altar in the same way the priest and the copy upon the earth could not enter into the sanctuary upon the earth without blood, without dying. So also the souls of men being held for judgment couldn't enter into the presence of the Lord in heaven without a superior blood. So my approach to it is that the righteous are held in Hades until the cross and a better blood is applied, and then they can tarry with the Lord in his presence in heaven. So, like Paul says in Philippians 1, it's, it's better for me, you know, to die that I might be in the presence, of, be with the Lord in His presence. And, and you have the, even the imagery of Revelation 6 where the souls cry out from under the altar, right? So that they're covered by the blood in the altar. That's what the altar's for in heaven. And so that's, that's, that's how I approach it. Different people will argue it different way as far as the intermediate state, but <clears throat> but anyway, um, the, everybody agrees that the wicked are still retained in Hades to this day, and the righteous tarry with the Lord, and then the righteous will descend. You know, First Thessalonians four, in glory when the Lord returns, we'll be caught up with Him in His presence, and we'll all go to Jerusalem for. A big judgment seat of Christ's party, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was wondering, like, you know that parable of the rich man and how just like uh, the righteous, do you think like in Hades, like they were on the part of the gulf, like I guess they call it Abraham's bosom? Yeah, so there's a couple, and I don't remember where they are now, and I need to, that would be good to put them on there, but there's a couple intertestinal references that are real clear where there's like a like a river that runs through the middle of Hades and the righteous are on one side and Abraham's bosom and the wicked are on the other side in torment, which lines up pretty much perfectly with Luke 16 where it's the rich man and Lazarus, you know, after they died, Lazarus was with Abraham, the rich man was in Hades, right? And so the assumption in everybody's mind because before and after Luke 16 are references to, uh, to the age to come. So the assumption is is that both are being held for judgment in Hades, and and the wicked are being held in torment, which is kind of you know what you get in Second Peter two here, where it says, "For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them to the lower regions of Hades, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment." If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, He condemned them to extinction making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So, you know, I mean, it's all of these ideas are real foreign to the modern mind, right? But you mull on them, you work through the scriptures, you mull on them, you work through all the scriptures again, you mull on them, you kind of go over and it becomes familiar and it becomes more and more normal and then it's just like, well, this seems like the the most integrative way to to a, approach the whole of them. Um, so I know uh, there's like a, I guess for lack of a better word, uh, there was a, a legend in the old in the you know church in the past that when Jesus was dead for three day the three days he was in hell freeing the souls. Do you believe there's any truth to that or? I wouldn't say freeing. I mean that that uh, that belief comes out of First uh, Peter three, which is notoriously one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament to translate. But so we'll read it. Three eighteen. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. So, 
what are the spirits? So this gets into the complex, uh, very hairy issue of the Nephilim and what they were, and were they were they spirits or just giants? And and uh, is this who he's talking about? If you believe they're spirits, then this lines up a lot easier. Where Jesus simply descended into Hades, testified to the angels who left their position or bound with chains until eternal judgment testified to them and then led the righteous out of of uh, out of their place in Hades. So again, I, I don't think I don't think the idea of like he went and like freed them because that that develops later with the kind of Christus Victor overcoming of the devil origins theory of atonement and all that and I don't think there's like a like a overpowering or overcoming for the righteous in the situation, but I can definitely see a testimony descends into Hades. There's a testimony to to the wicked, and then there's a leading out of the righteous. Though I guess the the righteous are bound, held in Hades. I don't know. Anyway, so then he uh, uh, he preached to the spirits in prison. So yeah, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently. In it, only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. <clears throat> so you get the two baptisms contrasted, the baptism after the sacrifice in the Old Testament for the body, the baptism after the sacrifice in the New Testament for the conscience, like Hebrews 9. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus who has gone up to heaven and is at the right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission. Then it goes on that the day of the Lord's at hand in chapter 4. So Jude 1, this again, if you believe the Nephilim theory is is angel humans, this kind of goes along with all of that, which I I don't know one way or the other. It's... It's kind of one of those where you have so little commentary in the scriptures and you have conflicting, you know, extra-biblical texts, you know, in Second Temple Judaism that say both one way or the other, you know. First Enoch is real clear, big 40-foot-tall angel-human things. <laughs> and then you have other ones that are, you know, they're just big people, big humans, because there's Nephilim after the flood. That's what makes the people turn back from going in, from wandering in the wildernesses. The Nephilim are there. We look like grasshoppers to them. Mm -hmm. You know, and and in the same city the Nephilim were so, so uh, Goliath was a descendant from from them in that same city. So, anyway, Jude 1, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality, pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Uh, so... Um, So the uh, eschatological justice, we 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 want to give a framework for it so that God isn't a bad guy, right? Because this is the the sentiment of our age, and it's really the sentiment that drives behind the whole modern social justice movement. And uh, the the Revelation 19 is kind of the conclusion of divine judgment and. With the conclusion of divine judgment, you get this fivefold repetition of hallelujah and praise God for his judgments have come. And like Revelation 15, where it has, uh, <clears throat> where it has the song of Moses, they say, and they held harps given by God, and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord? Bring glory to your name. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And then you get down to 16. You are just in these judgments, you who are and were the Holy One, because you have so judged. For they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets and given them blood to drink as they deserve. Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. 
So it's the same way where there's a hallelujah, like if, you know, if you're in any kind of leadership, whether in civil or economic or even in the house, when there's, there's wickedness happening, you know, there's a drug dealer in the school, there's embezzlement in the business, it's, there's, there's rebellion in the house, it's causing damage. And the damage keeps compounding upon itself exponentially, you know, and there's always groaning in the situation. And then finally, when the drug dealer gets kicked out of school, put in prison, the embezzlement stops and we're not losing money and the, the rebellion stops and there's not, you know, fights happening in the house. You have a spirit of hallelujah, praise God, you know, that righteousness is established and so we want to just view this as a positive thing, but then it's also a negative thing to the drug dealer that kick, gets kicked out, right? It's a negative thing to the guy who gets fired. It's a negative thing to the child that gets punished. So you have that tension between the punishment of the wicked and the mercy towards the wicked. And we want to uh, rejoice in both, but there's always going to remain a tension to both. <clears throat> so temporal and eternal justice. Temporal and eternal justice. Because it's not just eternal justice, there's, there's temporal justice. There's temporal blessings and there's temporal curses. God blesses people and He punishes people in this age. But how do we relate to God blessing people and punishing people in this age who are righteous and wicked? He makes the sun come up on the righteous and the wicked alike. He blesses the wicked. The wicked prosper. They go on, fattened in their ways, happy, without burden. You know, Psalm 73. <clears throat> and so, uh, so how do we deal with the two? So Revelation 2 is an example with Jezebel, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. And so it's assumed that she's a Gnostic because she has there's deep secrets, the deep secrets, the deep things of Satan, and there's there's uh, there's early church tradition that that connects it to that. <clears throat> and so that the Nicolaitans they they were the Nicolaitans were Gnostics. They they're from from Acts 6, Nicholas of Antioch, he ended up turning from the path of life and he became a follower of Simon Magnus, the Acts 8, Simon the Sorcerer. And he was the father of, of Gnosticism and so the Nicolaitans are, are followers of, of Nicholas the Gnostic. And so the secret things of Satan, the deep things of Satan are Gnosticism, the secret revelation of realized eschatology now in the early church. So again, we have a long tradition of it from the early church that goes on, but so, but it gives a you get a feel for, <clears throat> you know, the same way Paul calls it wickedness and 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 sinning and unrighteousness. You have the same zeal of the heart of the Lord towards it. So, it, just to give you a little comfort that when you're sitting there and the sky is going on and on and on about whatever, you just work it up by faith, and it's just like, oh. Oh, it's not just that you, uh, uh, you know, not just that it, it, it rubs on you wrong, is that it, it rubs on Jesus wrong, okay? So you find comfort when it rubs on you wrong. So he says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to, un to repent. And it helps you love people who are massively in error, you know, because the Lord loves them. Even though it rubs the Lord wrong, it the Lord still wants them to repent and be saved, and so you can have compassion in the midst of feeling offended in the situation. So, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, those who commit adultery with her. I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. So this phrase of giving to you as your works deserve is clearly an eschatological phrase from, from the prophets. And so it's understood that God is trying to get her and those who follow her to repent in light of 
eternal judgment, right? So you have a temporal judgment in light of eternal judgment that are working together. So likewise in 1 Corinthians 11, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So you proclaim the mercy of God in remembrance of the sacrifice until He comes, because God is doing the cross until He comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. So this is why we want to we want to um, uh, do regular communion, take communion every week as we gather and celebrate, because we want to keep ever before us the mercy of God and the sacrifice before the eternal judgment. But, just like the sacrifice, you cannot presume upon the sacrifice. There's no atonement for deliberate deliberate sin. It's called profaning the sacrifice. Hebrews 10, it's the same thing. It was profaned the blood of the Son of God. And dying with two or three witness with the law of Moses, how much worse the punishment of the Son of God. So, you have the, when we take communion, we remember, we search ourselves to see if we realize any guilt we, we, we hold a repentant attitude so that we remain clean and spotless and that the sacrifice bears our sins so that we don't end up bearing our own. And so this is the, the purpose of uh, a, 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 uh, a uh, uh, whatever, a common, not continual, often consistent, that's the word, consistent taking of communion. So the cup will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body and eats and drinks judgment on himself. Right? So so it's really the mercy of God that we take communion, all right? And he says, but if we judge ourselves, or it said, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. <laughs> so they're taking communion, and they're coming under judgment. Why? Because of the mercy of God, that God wants to shake people, bring them to their knees, so they cry out for mercy, relate to God in the sacrifice and repentance, so that it bears their sins, so they're saved from divine wrath eternally. Soon. So the, the blood isn't profane. So, But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. So when we have temporal judgment in this age, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world when He comes, right? So this is how God uses the temporal judgments and the, temporal, and the eternal judgments. Likewise, the temporal blessings and the eternal blessings. So that when, you know, it's it's... If we're walking before God in fear and trembling, then bad things happen, right? We can relate like Job, whether it's the devil or other people or ourselves or God or whoever. However it happens, we can receive it as discipline from our Father. We can search ourselves. We don't cast blame to other people, though it might be their fault. We don't cast blame to the devil, though it might be his fault. We search ourselves. We receive our part in the equation, and we repent, right? Which sets the example for with our spouses. We don't cast blame, though they are at fault too, always. But we search ourselves, and we initiate, and we repent of our, of our part, and we commit the other to the Holy Spirit and let them deal with their part. Likewise, with the people in our lives, and friends, family, people around us, Governments, nations, workplace, it's all the same game that we play, that we walk before God, taking account of our own lives and living in repentance and the fear of God until the day of judgment. And this is how our sin in the equation stays on the sacrifice and our names are left are written in the book of life. And then we don't bear our sin into the lake of fire. So it also protects us when blessings happen, right? Because this is, you know, commonly understood that that usually when people undergo difficult times, they turn to God. When the church undergoes persecution, it comes alive and turns to God. 
when people become blessed, they turn away and turn to idols. Throughout the Old Testament and New, Israel, kings, people, we know in our own lives. <clears throat> and when the church becomes blessed, it becomes lazy and slothful, generally, generally, turning away from zeal and, and walking before God. And so it protects us so that when blessings come, we rejoice in the giving of God, and we still have our hopes set fully on the blessings and grace to be given to us at the revelation of Jesus. Right? And we need, like, we need temporal blessings. Like, we want to pray for them and walk in them because there's nothing like when you're just at the edge of dying and all of a sudden the Lord, you know, provides and you just have that sweeping, oh, he really loves me and I'm not off his radar and his eye is actually on me, you know, and we, we need that, you know. And, but the Lord knows that when, the prosperity happens in abundance that it really is one of the trickiest areas in life that, that our hearts don't stay in the place of dependence and, and, and setting first before Him our eternal calling. So uh, again, we need both. And then when the, when the wicked are blessed, it doesn't, we don't lose our feet in the situation. We don't lose our head. We can say, well, that's how it is in this age because God is being nice to the wicked. He wants them saved, and he's not destroying them, right? And if he's kind to them, he'll probably take away everything they have so that they cry out to him so that their spirit is saved on the day of the Lord. Their flesh is handed over to destruction. And likewise, when the wicked are not punished, it doesn't, it doesn't affect us, you know? And, and this is one of the main issues of the of the whole justice movement is people's hearts get set priority on justice in this age and the punishment of God in this age. And then the wicked are not punished. You know, I remember a friend who was a missionary in, in Europe for, for decades and, and he said the whole abortion, pornography, immorality thing swept through Europe about 20, 30 years before the U.S., it was the exact same progression. And it was the exact same response to the church. And it all went the exact same way. And it didn't get better. And everybody became massively disillusioned in the church in Europe. And most people fell away. And now you have the infiltration of another animal called Islam. And, and the U.S. is like the same direction. You have the exact same response going on. And I remember him telling me just that, we have to set our eyes on, on our eternal inheritance. You know, we cannot set our eyes on this age because then you become disillusioned. So again, when it, it protects our hearts with both the good and the bad in the equation, and if the wicked receive justice, we don't end it there. You understand? Like we don't rejoice in the wicked being destroyed. We don't rejoice in the death of the wicked because the Lord doesn't either. Like we can interpret the punishment of the wicked in this age temporally in light of the eternal punishment. And this happens all the time. People get sent to prison, and they come to know God in prison. And then the church gets offended at it. Like if you've read, I forget the book that was written about Jeffrey Dahmer. And Jeffrey Dahmer, you know, uh, right before his death, repented. I mean, probably one of the most grotesque, unjust, wicked Human beings and events, it's hard to know worse, was Dahmer. And then his father shared some creationist stuff with him. And if you guys have ever seen that video from when he was interviewed by ABC and, and what's his name? Oh, Stone, Stone Phillips. Yeah, that was the guy. Anyway, and, and uh, so he... Dahmer came to a recognition that he's going to give an account for his life, that he had been fed evolution. He didn't think he was going to give an account for his life. And he came to repentance in prison and, and, and repented of his wickedness and, and was restored and, and, and uh, at peace with God. And he was able to, I mean, he was one of the most clear and bold witnesses I've, I've ever heard. And I, I, I'll just share this. A friend of mine some years ago, he had a, he had, it was, we were in, I was teaching at, at a school and, and he had a dream and he and a bunch of people are sitting around <clears throat> this group 
and they're talking about the brokenness of this age, of the youth of this of this generation. They're they're just pornography, no family. They're just completely shattered emotionally, psychologically, socially. They they're they're just it, we deal with this with young people, and so they're sitting around the group strategizing about what do we do with the brokenness of this generation. And the whole time there's a man sitting there, a faceless man in glory, and everybody knows he's the angel of the Lord, but everybody's just kind of like, you know, just talking along as though he's not there, right? And, and so the, my friend who's in the dream, he, he riles up and he goes, we need to call this generation to radical fasting and prayer and a disciplined life. And all of a sudden in the middle of his rant, the faceless man, the angel, interrupts him and says, no. You are wrong. You need to call this generation to the day of the Lord and you need to make it real. And he says, look to Jeffrey Dahmer as an example. And he wakes up from his dream, right? So then right after that, like in class, I show this video of Jeffrey Dahmer and his testimony, right? It's just like the most clear and confident and bold testimony about giving an account of our lives to Jesus and and so it was just like, whoa, you know, like what restores the human psyche and the soul is the loving discipline of our Father. That's that's what does it, you know, and, and that's what, when the day of the Lord becomes real and people take account of their life and responsibility and repent, then comes healing when we turn to God. <clears throat> so So understanding temporal recompense in relation to eternal recompense leads us on a narrow path that we can relate to God and relate to one another rightly. You understand? So, this age and the mercy of God. So, we have temporal punishment and temporal mercy. Temporal punishment, temporal, uh, temporal judgment, temporal blessings. But, we have to keep in mind the broad, overreaching pattern of this age is mercy. 